Hey, deserving listeners, a lot of you have been asking me over the years to talk about autism. And a lot of you out there even say to me, you write me and say that you're on the spectrum. It's a very complicated thing that I actually don't have a ton of experience with. I have some early experience in my career with, but I would never call myself an expert or, or uh, of the knowledge of uh, amount to be able to speak with any kind of um, expertise around that. And occasionally we kind of get into it, but uh, I thought I would have an expert on the show to talk about autism once and for all, and maybe come back on the show, maybe answer people's questions um, as time goes on. Because again, a lot of people, not only half of you are therapists who might be treating people on the spectrum, but also again, a lot of you are uh, self-identify as being on the spectrum. So welcome to the show, Megan. Please introduce yourself. Hey everyone, uh, my name is. Megan Wildhood. I am a Seattle and am working on my MSW. I work in social services. I have a background in crisis work. Uh, so I've worked with a number of people on the spectrum and um, I myself have uh, been diagnosed as on the spectrum as well. Great. So what are some common misconceptions about autism that you want to clear up here? Sure. Uh, thanks for that question. The first thing I uh, would love to clear up is this uh, very common stereotype that people on the spectrum um, lack empathy. Uh, it's, uh, it's, it's very common and it's very damaging, partly because uh, it's, it's just absolutely not true. And um, I think one of the reasons people may think that it's true is because uh, there's sometimes people experience uh, a lot of social difficulties. And so uh, I know for myself, I don't express empathy in a way that is expected or easily recognized by many people. And so what often happens with me is I will feel something so deeply that I'll shut down and it will look like I am not interested. I am not connected and I don't care. Um, I know several other uh, of my friends and other people that I've worked with also experienced something similar. And so uh, I would just like to state right out everyone I know who's on the spectrum has a deep well of empathy uh, we just don't express it in the way that is um, that it often looks like for people who are neurotypical or not on the spectrum. Um, so that's the main one that I'd like to to start off with. Yeah, great. I'm glad you're pointing that out. And I've talked about this in the podcast before as well. Uh, and it's a notion that is not only spread by the internet, but also by popular media. Like, um, not only in the news, there was a lot of talk about the Sandy Hook uh, killer, the yeah. who was apparently on the spectrum, reportedly on the spectrum, and this notion that uh, you know having autism means that you don't have empathy, which leads you to kill people. Uh, that is a notion that is present in our society, which is ridiculous. Um, also, in fictional TV shows, you know Sherlock, this kind of thing, these people are portrayed as supposedly on the spectrum or it's implied or something. And I haven't watched Sherlock since the first few episodes, you know, years ago, but there's this notion of just like they're logical, like Dr. Spock and, or like Mr. Spock and they, they don't have feelings and they, they see through feelings and they don't, you know, they don't have emotions. 
And all that is, is false. There's some kind of weird fascination with equating human beings with robots and autism spectrum uh, stereotypes and misunderstanding somehow lends itself to that writing or something. Um, you know what I'm talking about in, in that arena? Definitely. I see that. Um, I think one of the things that feeds into that is that our notion of autism as a culture is still a bit stuck kind of back in like the fifties. And we kind of still build our, uh, concepts of autism on what we kind of thought we knew 60, 70 years ago. But all of that research um, was, I mean, it wasn't complete. And it was also only done on boys. And so being a a woman, and I was not diagnosed until I was an adult, um, being a woman on the spectrum, it actually, um, we, we are very much more often misdiagnosed with something other than autism spectrum disorder. Um, And I think it's partly how we socialize girls in this culture, partly what is expected of uh, women. And I think there are, there are a lot of differences between boys and girls on the spectrum that we are still learning um, in the newer research that's coming out. And I think oftentimes we, when we equate uh, people on the spectrum as, you know, Oh, well we're, you know, computer programmers or we're very literal or we have all of these like very rigid notions of what a person on the spectrum should be. Part of that has come from um, another kind of harmful stereotype is that, you know, well, you know, men don't have emotions. And so therefore boys are very much more diagnosed on the spectrum than girls are. And that may or may not be accurate. We're still kind of, that's still the data is still coming out on that. But I think those two stereotypes uh, have kind of come to a very harmful intersection uh, in terms of what we think autism looks like or who who has it versus who has, say, a personality disorder, which is also a very harmful term. But right. uh, girls and women are very much more um, misdiagnosed with personality disorders as opposed to autism. Yeah, absolutely. I, I could see a lot of clinicians and just society having a really hard time imagining in their mind that a girl, a 10-year-old girl, could be on the spectrum. It, uh, typically, it's just like if you just envision someone on the spectrum, it, it, society-wise, it's always, it's always a boy. Um, now, getting back to the empathy issue, I have worked with people uh, on the spectrum uh, early in my career. And I would say that their empathy was impaired at times because it was hard for them to understand what was happening socially and, and, and to understand me as I was trying to communicate with them. Um, you know, these are people higher on the spectrum and for example, developed speech later in life at the age of, you know, 12 or something. And so it was hard for them to understand, you know, facial cues. They actually didn't have a lot of eye contact. It was hard for them to understand vocal inflection. They were often really focused on, certain things in the room or something that they were perseverating on or there was overstimulation or something. And all that, you know, shall we say, data input on the brain makes it so that uh, the empathy ability doesn't kick in because they're not noticing something. For example, just, you know, I'm not on the spectrum, but if, if I'm super concentrating on my phone because I'm, you know, I don't know, distracted, and my wife comes in and she has some kind of uh, emotional experience, um, because I'm not paying attention to it, I might not pick up on it. And so 
it's not that I don't have empathy. It's just that my, my attention is, is not on that and or um, it's hard for me to interpret that sort of thing. So that's another uh, misconception of just like, because there's people out there with kids or with loved ones who are identified on the spectrum where they suspect. And it feels as though the person doesn't care about you. You know, it feels as though, man, this person just does not care about me. But it could be an issue, like you said, of feeling so much that the person is shutting down or that they just have a harder time understanding what you're going through because of, of the nature of, of the condition. Would you agree with that or am I, am I speaking out of turn? I, I would agree both in terms of my experience as somebody who is on the spectrum and someone who has worked with folks on the spectrum. I think uh, one thing that uh, we would love for uh, neurotypical people to understand is that eye contact and listening is multitasking for us. And so, and since there is actually no such thing as multitasking, it's actually your brain rapidly switching between tasks and doing both of them poorly. Uh, we miss a lot when we're trying to focus on eye contact or when we're trying to focus on the verbal, we miss a lot of nonverbal. And so there's a lot that can be missed. And because uh, what, what we know about the autism brain is that it, it's more rigid. It's not that there's no plasticity, but it is a bit more rigid than a neurotypical brain. Switching between tasks is harder, takes a bit more time. And uh, that's one reason why the, um, the common idea of uh, hyper-focus, people um, on the spectrum having hyper-focus, that I actually don't think is a misconception, but it's partly because it's very hard to get back into focus. So we don't like being interrupted. And I could also imagine that it feels good to actually be focused on something that you're enjoying. Of just like, okay, this feels kind of good. Like I'm kind of, I'm not scattered all over the place. Like I finally found something that I'm, I'm in the zone with. I'm focusing on this device or this flower or this person or this idea. And if you, if you get out, of, if you interrupt me, it's going to take me another half an hour to actually find something to, to focus on. I've never heard it described that way, but that makes a lot of sense. Totally. And that's often why um, people will get upset when they get interrupted because they were like, oh, I was in the flow. I was doing really well on this task that I had in front of me. And now you're interrupting me. And so, and I, I do have empathy for the people who are like, well, but don't you care about me? I just got home and you don't want to say hi or, oh, I, you know, I have something I want to say and it seems like an emergency, but now you're being grumpy and kind of aloof and off-putting. And it's just that it's, it's disappointing to lose focus because it's, it's very difficult. It takes a lot of energy um, to reach the threshold of focus again. And so that's a thing that um, I think people on the spectrum kind of experience maybe more acutely than um, folks. Not that people who are neurotypical don't experience that. I just think it's definitely more prevalent among uh, people on the spectrum. So have you had to explain these things to people around you and how do you do that and how successful are you? Uh, I have had to explain it. That's actually one of the reasons I'm grateful for my diagnosis. Uh, I wasn't diagnosed until I was 28, but once I was diagnosed, I had language for uh, helping myself, like helping me understand me and then helping others understand me. And it's really helped me, especially in the workplace. Um, 
with, I've worked in several offices that have open floor plans, which is very stressful for me. I don't have a door I can close and I have to, you know, have noise canceling headphones and then my ears get sore because uh, my nervous system is turned up on high, which is kind of one of the hallmarks of um, autism spectrum. So one of the things I've done is I've said that uh, I've kind of set boundaries around you know, this is what it looks like when I'm focused. I'll have my earphones on, both earphones, and instead of like one off to the side. So that means, you know, unless it's an absolute emergency, uh, I would appreciate you not interrupting me. And then I've also um, kind of put up signs that say, you know, I'll be free at 1130. So if you can come back then, that would be great. Um, I found that when I've done that com- that communication proactively, Uh, my coworkers and my supervisors totally understand and they're completely happy to support me. I don't have to say anything like, Oh, I'm on the spectrum and therefore I need this accommodation. It's more just that proactive communication. And I've learned that that's actually a good self care thing for me is I know I need this. And if I just ask for it before somebody interrupts me and I get angry about it and I just say, this is how I work best. Um, That because I know a lot of people struggle uh, in the workplace with um, autism spectrum because they don't they don't know how to do the like natural social interaction that a lot of people do. But I think that proactive communication, you know, naming what do you need? Oh yeah, the reason I get angry when I get interrupted is because it is so hard for me to focus again. It's not because I don't like people. I thought for a long time I'm I must just be a curmudgeon. I must just not like people at all, which made me sad. But it was like no, I'm actually just not getting my needs met in a way that I can do something about. Yeah. Wow. I mean, I, I'm, I don't, I'm not on the spectrum, like I said, and work situations like that stress me out a lot. Um, yeah. There, you know, you, you describe situations just like I'm busy right now um, and getting annoyed with that. So yeah, I can imagine that it being exacerbated by that for sure. So what other misconceptions do you want to clear up for the listeners? Yeah, I think another um, misconception that uh, I found to be particularly painful in my life is that there's one particular way that autism looks. Mm. Like when I've shared with people I'm on the spectrum, I've gotten several stunned looks or I've even had a couple of people say, oh, you don't look autistic. (laughs) And um, part of that's really ableist. So we'll just call that what it is. But I think that there, there's that floating around out there, this idea that autism looks one way and it really doesn't. You know, if you've met one person on the spectrum, you've met one person on the spectrum, just like, you know, everybody who is neurotypical is not, there's not this like monolith of neurotypicality. There's not a monolith of autism either. And so I may be, and we can talk about, you know, high functioning, low functioning. I don't particularly like those terms, but, um, you know, people on the spectrum have personalities just like people who are neurotypical do. And um, there, there are definitely themes. There are definitely, I mean, there's, there's a reason there's a diagnostic category for autism spectrum disorder. But within that, there's just as much diversity as uh, neurotypicality. And so I think this, like, this idea that, well, I, should, I will be able to identify somebody who is on the spectrum it's just, it's really harmful because it also blocks um, people from getting to know those of us on the spectrum. Like, well, you all, all are this one way, or you all look this one way, or you can't possibly be on the spectrum because you don't fit the stereotype of what it should look like. And right. um, 
I think that just whatever, whatever idea you may have of autism spectrum disorder, um, it's broader. It's broader than that. What sort of themes are there that you can identify? Uh, one of the things that I, I have identified both in myself and working um, in, in crisis work and also in social services is that there is this deep, I want to call it social anxiety. Probably it does come from the whole having to switch between multitasks, the things like, you know, eye contact and listening is, is two different things for us, whereas it may not be for others. Um, so we do miss things. And so I think, and then we, then we feel anxious when we're interacting with other people because we know something's off. We can feel it. I think that's a misconception is people on the spectrum don't know that there's something off. Uh, everyone I have met does. We just don't always know what it is. And so that whole, there's this, there's this deep anxiety of interacting with people, which leads to a misconception that we don't like people or we want to be alone or we don't want to have relationships with others or, you know, we don't have friends. We don't want friends. Um, but that whole, that anxiety is what's kind of driving all of that. You know, it's just, it's just less stressful to not interact with people, even though I, I very much want to. I think that there's the misconception that people on the spectrum don't feel loneliness, which is, is not true at all. Um, another theme that I see uh, among us spectrumites is that there is a way in which we interpret, uh, especially uh, other people, as literal that doesn't necessarily mean like computer logical robot. It just means that um, words mean exactly what we think they mean. And that's just not how most people communicate. Most people are a little more fluid. Most people, when they communicate something, maybe they're trying on an idea. Whereas we hear this as this is concrete. This is in stone. This is exactly what you mean for all time. And I think literalness can come out in different ways. I, I say I'm, I'm a very literal person, especially when I'm listening to others, but I'm also a poet. And so it's not literal across the board. It's, I mostly go, oh, when I hear somebody say something, I think that means that they're making a commitment to always meaning that thing that they just said. I'm more like that, although I, I haven't met a human who is 100% like that. Um, but that's that's another theme is this very kind of literal, which is not the same as logical, because sometimes taking things literally is not logical at all. Um, but I see that happening a lot uh, amongst the, uh, the Spectrumite community. So what's an example of something like that where you might hear something that the person isn't meaning it as literally as, as you're taking it? What's an example of that? Sure. Uh, one that comes comes up a lot actually is in, uh, in conversations with people that I'm just getting to know or, um, have just met, uh, as we're parting, they'll say, Oh yeah, let's get together sometime. And I will hear that as sure. So we're going to get in touch with each other after this sometime today or tomorrow and like actually set up a time to hang out when what they really mean is I had a nice time. It would be great to see you again but they don't actually have any sort of intention of reaching out again. And that's not that they're a bad person. That's just what they've been taught to say to express the feeling of, I enjoyed speaking with you. It would be great if it were to happen again. And I used to be really hurt by, well, why are all these Seattleites saying let's hang out? And they don't really mean it. Nobody means what they say around here. And it's like, 
No, they're actually just saying, I had a nice time and it would be great if it were to happen again, but I'm not in the moment having an intention of it happening again. Yeah, I could really see that. Um, now, I, I as a uh, more literal person, personality-wise too, um, would prefer it if people actually did. And, and um, there's more of a passive language that you know, some people will have. You know, like, like, I'll, like you'll say something like... Um, well, I really want to get spaghetti tonight. What do you want? And that might be like, yeah, we could get spaghetti. And to me, I'm like, okay, well, we could get spaghetti. But what they mean is you're supposed to hear the lack of enthusiasm in my voice because a yes is, oh, absolutely, I really want to get spaghetti. A no to me is, yeah, we could get spaghetti. And to me, I'm like, well... You didn't just just say no. Just say I don't want spaghetti because I I would rather have have you just say that. Um, you know, it's annoying to have to decipher these things. So, um, yes. so I can relate to that on a certain level. But you know, totally. being on the spectrum would mean that because of that focus issue, uh, you might you know not pick up on the subtleties of the voice while you're concentrating on the words or the eye contact or or some some other thing. Yeah, so. Uh, I want to get back to something you said earlier, you know, the social anxiety issue, because I think that's, I think that's very interesting. And I could imagine, and you tell me, but you know, you're five years old, you're 10 years old, you're 15 years old, you're doing a lot of social interacting with teachers, with friends, with your family members, maybe. And you might be repeatedly running into, particularly undiagnosed, running into situations yeah. where things aren't going well. People are misunderstanding you. You're misunderstanding them. And, you know, you have a friend or you're trying to make a friend or something and it just goes horribly wrong. Or you're doing some kind of uh, communication with someone that's in front of other people and something goes wrong and you're like, wait, what did I miss? Like everyone seems to be laughing or upset about something. And, you know, I must be a terrible person or I must not understand how to socialize or my, you know, I, I just, I need to shut down and avoid uh, socializing with other people because usually things go badly for me in, in that situation. Um, am I describing the sort of developmental experience? Uh, well, yes, I think that, and this, this is not specific to people on the autism spectrum, but I have not met a single person who is, um, who is on the spectrum who has not had to work through the belief that they've held possibly for decades that there is something wrong with them. And also every person on the spectrum that I've ever met has at one point or another in their life truly believed that they were a monster. And they've said those words to me that I, I, they either still believe that on some level or they're like, yeah, I really had to work through that. I really had to work through the belief that I must be a monster. Um, and so, uh, and, and there's various coping mechanisms that have come up with that a lot of times. And that, that does actually tend to run on gender lines, at least in my experience with girls, it's masking or passing. So they're like, I don't understand what's going on at all. I know I want connection because I'm a human. So what I'm going to do is just mirror other people. I'm just going to mimic. I don't know why people hug and they don't know each other. I don't know why people shake hands. I don't know why people talk about the weather for 25 minutes, but I'm going to do it because that is the thing that you do if you want friends. And then, and so their true self gets 
just further and further and further suppressed. And then they start having the story of, well, I can't be loved for who I am because if I were to do that, stuff goes bad. Everything that I touch goes badly socially. So I have to be somebody, I can either be who I am or I can have what I want, but not both. And I've seen with, um, with boys a lot, it's, it's aggression or it's anger. Um, and that's again, generalities. I've, I've had some anger issues, so it's definitely not just, oh, boys get angry and girls go hide. It's definitely not just those, but I think there's the percentages are more, you know, boys are like, well, okay, if I can't fit in, I'm just going to be difficult. Yeah, fine. You think I'm difficult? I'll show you difficult. Um, and of course that's every teenager on the planet too, but it's also, it's heightened with people on the spectrum. And I think they don't, uh, they don't realize that because you don't know what you don't know. I mean, you don't know that other people are having a different experience than you. And so you're like, well, it looks easy for everyone else. Like, but what I experience is, so everybody on the surface is speaking English, but they're speaking this other whispered language underneath it. And I don't know what it is. And I can't even hear it. Yeah, that's heartbreaking to hear. Uh, I don't know if I've ever heard it expressed in that way. Uh, that, I mean, it's one thing to be socially anxious or to have maybe some low self-esteem around social interactions, but to believe that you're a monster, um, that is heartbreaking. And to have to suppress your true self. And again, misconception, I think a lot of people uh, don't even recognize that people with autism have this sophistication of personality to do that. You know, I, it's sort of in people's language when they talk about this, like, oh, well, people on the spectrum, they're, they're sort of like simple, you know, and they, they don't, what they don't know won't bother them. And it's like hearing you describe this, uh, it's like anyone can relate to that of just feeling like they're a screw up or they're not good enough or something. And you can imagine with this difference uh, really, you know, from a, from the day you're, you know, two, three, four years old, bumping up against that and no one helping you frame that. Um, I could, you know, but tell me more about this monster concept because is it, is it the way you described it in terms of there's something fundamentally flawed with me that no one would like? Is that the monster thing or is it something bigger than that? It's, it's partly, oh gosh, people don't like me if I am who I am and if I do what I think is natural to me. But I think it's also more, there's this like, I don't feel human because I do not understand what the other humans are doing. And so I must be a monster as in an alien. Like I must just not have this human, I must be on the wrong planet. Like I must have somehow gotten the coordinates wrong because no matter how much, like it seems like the more I try to understand it, the worse it is because everyone else seems to do this very naturally. And so me even trying to understand it is more evidence that I'm a monster. I think also the, the media um, stereotypes about like, well, you know, people on the spectrum are violent because they don't have empathy. That definitely does not help that, um, that feeling of like, Oh, I, I must be a monster. And I think this, well, I don't, you know, I don't have the same reactions that other people are having around me. So gosh, there must be something deeply flawed that people don't like, but also that is just not human. And I think the other thing that drives that home is that, and I I see this uh, a lot, unfortunately, is even, even with adults, even, um, 
it usually happens with like parents talking about their kids who are on the spectrum in their presence as if they're not in the room. Um, but I've also seen that happen with, uh, people talking about people on the spectrum. Uh, oh, well, if you're not socially aware and that, that, so I think that misconception can also play into the, well, I feel like a monster because there's this dehumanization that happens when you're being talked about as if you are not in the room, like, oh, well, yeah, you wouldn't understand it anyway. And just how, how we're talked about in the media, how we're talked about it in our presence, even that kind of drives home this just not humanness. There's just something outside of the human experience that is going on with, with autism spectrum. Like that's just so, well, that couldn't be a human thing because humans do this instead of humans do this and this humans do the neurotypical thing and the autism spectrum thing. It's all, we haven't quite included everyone like the whole autism awareness day. I I want it to be autism inclusion day, autism acceptance, not just, yes, we're aware that you're you exist. I mean, that's, almost makes it worse to just stop at awareness. Yeah, I get it. And uh, it, it reminds me of this uh, human bias that I remember learning a long time ago. And I, I don't know if I'm going to word it quite right, but this is from memory, is that we develop as we socialize with our humans this template for understanding other human beings. And it's all implicit. And if people follow those rules or with our reality testing or our human testing, the other person passes these tests, then we kind of relax. You know, okay, I, I, I can predict this person's behavior because they've, they've met the 10 criteria of what I consider to be a human being that I can trust. Mm-hmm. You know, an example of this is um, one day you go to work and you wear your shirt on backwards and you put a hat on inside out and you, you know, draw a little unicorn on your cheek. Well, nothing about that is illegal or uh, bad or um, any indication of anything. You're, you're, you're just like, you know, I just decided to wear my shirt on backwards. But you walk into the office, people are going to be scared of you. They're going to be like, not, they're not going to just notice that it's different because they will. They'll be like, that's weird. He's wearing his shirt on backwards and he, had, he drew a unicorn on his cheek. That's kind of, that's different. I haven't seen him do that before. But they will actually feel fear about what is that person going to do to me? Is that person going to hurt me? It, you know, because if I can't predict that person's behavior, then what else are they going to do? And of course, the bias can work the other direction where serial killers and manipulative people will actually uh, follow all the rules that you're supposed to follow and get you to trust them. And then they can actually hurt you. (laughs) So it's, it's a, it's a bias that doesn't always make sense. And so for the, uh, for the person on the spectrum, if there's something a little different about them, then it, it triggers that bias of just like, well, if, if they didn't pass that test, what other tests are they not going to pass? I'm, I'm afraid of this person. What are they going to do to me? And uh, by uh, accepting and including those kinds of personality traits or, you know, uh, I don't know what you call it, but tendencies uh, into the human uh, repertoire, we can expand that test a little bit so that people aren't afraid of people on the spectrum. Yeah. And I want to say that it actually works the other way too. 
part of the social anxiety is that people on the spectrum also have a template. And so when we encounter somebody who is neurotypical, what society would say normal, we see that as strange. And so we can do the, oh, what are they going to do? That's weird. And I feel fear. So that kind of also plays into the social anxiety piece as well, because it's outside of our template, um, which kind of goes into the, the, the theory of mind a little bit like, okay, well, you know, people who are on the spectrum don't just naturally understand the neurotypical way of communicating and interacting. But I think the, the reverse is also true. And so uh, it just, it hasn't occurred to people like, well, people in the spectrum actually also do have templates for how and what relationships should be and what they should look like. And when it's outside of that, we also feel fear. It's just that we are not the dominant part of the culture. And so that gets labeled as part of the disorder rather than that's actually a, a legitimate experience as well too, to have that. What other misconceptions do you want to clear up for the listeners? And yeah. half, of, half of our listeners are clinicians too. So, you know, you might want to think about telling yeah. clinicians what they should know. Right. Uh, so I've, uh, I've worked with several um, MSWs and a few uh, like on interdisciplinary teams. And I think one of the things that uh, comes up a lot in the, um, the clinical practice that I've seen is that people who are on the spectrum don't, this is just an implicit assumption um, that they kind of don't, they're not even aware that's happening, that people on, on the spectrum either don't know what they need or can't advocate for themselves. And so they kind of need, you know, spokespeople or they need people to kind of guide them and hold their hand in a way that they perhaps don't. Um, it, and if they were, you know, if people on the spectrum were given the right tools, um, I think a lot of times people think like, oh, well, you know, people who are nonverbal can't communicate. And that is not true. Non, just because you are nonverbal, does, everybody can communicate. You just have to be given the right tools. And so there's this assumption that if you're on the spectrum, you're stupid. And if you, but if you're given the right tools, one of them being safety, that's a tool that I think if clinicians can create that uh, rapport and validation, um, and uh, I think motivational interviewing has been really helpful too for, for me that, that when I've been working with folks on the spectrum, if we can create that sort of safe space, that's a tool that, that people who have had the experience of burying their true selves for so long that they may not initially know what they need, but the more safety that's created and the more invitation to, uh, for self um, determination, instead of, Oh, you're on the spectrum. Here's your plan. You know, here's your, here's your treatment plan. Here's what you should have for goals. And instead asking, well, what does the fulfilling life look like for you? What, what do your goals uh, what do they look like for you? How would you, how would you like to see your life look in five years? And then having as, as little um, expectation as possible about that. Like maybe we want our clients to, you know, have this great, wonderful, amazing life with all of this stuff that, you know, we would want for ourselves. But um, that's, that is, that's a way to decrease safety rather than increase it. And so if you just try to come and we're all human, we all have biases, of course, but to come with as blank of a slate and as little expectation for the answer to that question as possible, I think will invite, and you may have to do it more than once. I mean, you know, if you have, a, if you've had a lifetime of uh, repeated 
rejection of uh, your intelligence, your ability to name what you need, and for and the rejection of your needs being legitimate, then it may take a couple of times, a couple of sincere invitations uh, to come out of your shell. And so I think this, uh, this misconception that's very much lurking, because I know all the clinicians I've worked with, all of the therapists I've seen myself, definitely well-meaning and want to be helpful. But this idea of being helpful needs to kind of be jiggered a little bit. Like, oh, maybe people actually do know what they need and they're just, we're asking them in a language they don't understand. And then we're getting mad, like we're asking them in French and then we're getting mad that they don't understand French. When what really needs to happen is we need to ask them in the language they speak. What is that language? I mean, is it our articulatable in this format? I mean, because a lot of mm-hmm. clinicians, including myself, are thinking, okay, uh, what what is the key? Is it just more space or more uh, lack of assumptions, more, more time? Or is it a specific language that you're talking about? Um, all three of those are good. I think one thing that's been helpful for me and I've noticed has been helpful with people that I've worked with is that uh, there is, it kind of goes along with the uh, being literal piece there is a sort of black and white to our thinking. And, and I want to say black and white, not black or white. There is actually a difference between those two. Um, I've, uh, I used to be very black or white as a child. Um, and if you gave me toast with peanut butter and I asked for toast with jam, it was an absolute sin and you were a horrible person. But this black and white, like we do see things in categories and Um, a lot of the people that I've worked with, and I also experienced this myself, you know, there is a very strong sense of right and wrong. Yes or no, this or that. And so, and I, and I know I can hear the clinicians in the back of my mind going, but that's not helpful. That's actually hurting you. And until they come to, we come to that on our own, I think trying to say, oh, well, I don't think in right or wrong or, oh, it's not this or that, that can actually cause us to further retreat and instead kind of speaking that language of, you know, and you don't even have to agree with it yourself, but I, I understand that you see things as, you know, this is right. This is wrong. This is yes. This is no, this is black. This is white. And making the space for that, for that person um, is one of the things that was really helpful for me in defining what I needed instead of just feeling like, oh, I'm bad and wrong for having a very strong sense of yes or no, right and wrong, because yeah. maybe it's hurtful. It was, it, And I see like, yeah, there are ways that that was hurting me, but I had to have the space to work through that myself instead of just being told, stop thinking that way. Don't think that way. There, and it's the categories are broader, but starting with the, the assumption, one of the assumptions is people do cat people on the spectrum do categorize and they're kind of strong and separated and the categories may look different for different people, but just that there is that framework in a way that may not, it may, you may not think is helpful as a clinician and you may be right, but telling somebody that is actually just going to cause them to shut down as opposed to making the space of, Oh, we have these categories now. Interesting. Okay. How can we work with these categories until they start to relax on their own is kind of the main thing I've seen. Yeah, I could see that. So, you know, and it's in your language, but I'm guessing an example of this would be uh, someone on the spectrum is in therapy as a client and they're saying, 
So last night I got frustrated with my partner for interrupting my process and I yelled at him and told him that he was a piece of shit because he got in my way and I did a terrible thing and I should never have done that. And that makes me a bad person because I called him a piece of shit, which is clearly like the wrong thing to do. You're not supposed to insult people. I'm a Mm -hmm. bad person because I did that. And the therapist is like, whoa, whoa, whoa. You know, yes, you did a bad thing, but um, calling yourself a bad person, you know, that's not helpful to you. Uh, But for you, you're just like, no, uh, there's a bad way to do things and there's a good way to do things. And that was a bad way to do things. And by you kind of interrupting my, my categorization process on that, it's, it's like, I'm, I have to pull away from you as, as I usually do with people like you who aren't like me in this way. And, uh, cause you're not speaking my language. And as a therapist, you want to enter that world. There's just like, okay, I hear you, you know, that you're saying that you did a terrible thing. And, maybe not focusing on the I'm a terrible person language. It's like, okay, I hear you that you did that, you know, you did a terrible thing. Okay. You know, tell me more, you know, where, how do you feel about it? What do you want to do with it? You know, just kind of taking some time with that. That's interesting. That never would have occurred to me, Megan. Uh, So that, that's really helpful. And I'm sure to, 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 to a lot of the listeners as well. Um, One of the things that I, I want to get into a little bit is, that it is a spectrum, as we call it, right? We used to have this thing called autism disorder, and then we had Asperger's, and then we revamped it about 10 years ago or so to be a spectrum. And uh, recognizing that um, it is a spectrum and that uh, some people progress on the spectrum, you know, they develop or they learn skills or whatever, and uh, or whatever. But I think a misconception for a lot of people that don't work with people with autism think that you are a good example of like all people who are on the spectrum. You know, there's a lot of people who think, well, autism is just like, well, you're just a little quirky. And it's like, yeah, sure. Uh, that's one way of looking at it, I suppose. But like in the autistic people that I worked with, like I was talking about earlier, um, some of them couldn't talk and they couldn't, uh, uh, function at school. They couldn't, uh, they would get very upset because of this miscommunication between their parents and other people and them. And they would have, um, you know, a lot of angry, violent behavior as a result because they just felt like a disconnect between them and the world. They would perseverate on certain ideas um, and get a little naughty sometimes. And they might be sexual in a way that, because, you know, if they're mm-hmm. 15 years old and they have a 15-year-old sexuality, but they developmentally aren't really there yet or don't really understand how to navigate that sexuality, then there might be some concerning behaviors if they're around other people. And so, um, obviously, again, it's a spectrum, but I, and I'm talking more about uh, the higher end of the autism spectrum. And I think that people need to understand, and a lot of times these people are sectioned off from society and no one gets any experience with them. So they have, they don't even know they exist. You know what I mean? Um, And so uh, I I don't know, I guess I'm just saying that, but do you have anything to add to that? Yeah, that is a, that is a very, very good point. It is definitely a spectrum. The spectrum is very broad. Um, It does not include everyone, of course, but it's very broad. And I think that, one of the things to keep in mind is that 
uh, for folks who are either nonverbal or who are acting out in ways that are concerning or possibly harmful to others is that, of course, we want to make sure everyone involved is safe and protected. And I think that empathy goes a long way, at least understanding that there on the in within the autism spectrum there have there are things that make it very very difficult to communicate in a way that is understood by caregivers by parents by clinicians uh people around the the people on the spectrum and that doesn't mean that they are violent people it means that the level of frustration that we all feel when we are not being understood, when we cannot get our point across, when we cannot, we can't connect. We're trying so hard to connect in the only ways that we know how. Those are magnified for folks who have non-traditional forms of communication, partly because, uh, as I briefly said earlier, uh, one of the common themes for people on the spectrum is that our nervous systems are turned up on high. Everything that we experience on a scale of, it could be on a scale of one to 10, is a 10. If something is very cold, it's frigid. If something's hot, it's burning. If there's a temperature change between one and the other, we feel that, that acutely everywhere. And that's true for emotions as well, because the nervous system and the emotional system are intertwined. So frustration can feel like hopeless rage, because we are disconnected. And I think that belonging, connection, all of that. It's, it's a human thing. That's that you are not disqualified from that desire or that need just because you have an autism diagnosis. And so that, that violent behavior that, um, that might be uh, endangering others uh, is on some level, even it may be, you may have to go very, very deep for it, but is on some level a frustration turned up to the highest level it possibly can be uh, that can, that needs for connection and belonging are not being met because we come hardwired with those and every human comes hardwired with those. And they, and I'm not like, Oh, everybody's just doing the best they can. Like, well, okay. We also have to, we have to protect everybody involved, of course, but having that framework of, I wonder if this is just an, an unmet need for belonging that is coming out in, in very harmful, it can come out in very harmful ways, of course. And how do we work with that in a way that also keeps everybody safe? Yeah. For the example that I sometimes think about for myself is in my early career, uh, actually, this is before I was a therapist. I was a care worker of a sorts. And one of the one of my people that I worked with was on the higher end of the autism spectrum and he was a teenager and he was just recently verbal and he could speak on some level. It, it was, it was pretty difficult for him, but he could, he could communicate some things. And my job was essentially to uh, enact a treatment plan that was developed by a therapist that was involved. But most of my job honestly was just to kind of entertain him and also uh, give the parents a little bit of a break because mm-hmm. he required a lot of uh, attention and sort of what any, but he had a routine and we, 
um, and we would you know kind of do very similar things. One of the things that he loved to do was to go for a walk to a nearby lake, and he, he I don't know what it was about this lake, but he just he just loved walking to this lake, kind of sitting at the side of the lake and then coming home. I mean, you know, I guess I can relate to that, but he, it, it was it was very. It, it was some. It was really like at the top of his list. But the the problem to me was that it took a long time to walk to the lake, and my shift was like sometimes shorter than other times. And so, you know, he he would he would say, you know, that he wanted to go there. And this one time, I was like, well, we can go, but if we don't get there in a certain amount of time, we have to turn around and come back because my shift ends at a certain, and I knew well enough to know that he might not really get that or, or even necessarily care. But, um, but, uh, uh, so I took the chance and, you know, we left and we got almost there, not, you know, we're probably like two thirds away there. And I was like, we got, you know, we got to turn around and go home. And he was usually pretty good about, about following my directions. I was kind of like a big brother to him in a lot of ways. Mm. And I was probably being a little flip about it. Uh, looking back, I probably wasn't spending enough time attending to his emotional, like the predictive emotional state um, that he might be in, uh, having been disappointed at, like that he couldn't get there. Um, but I, I, just, I just said, oh, we got to turn around. And, and I, I took my eyes off of him and he clocked me as hard as he could in the face. He just, he punched me so hard. But the thing is, is I'm, um, let me put it this way. I've been punched before and I've, and I've experienced that kind of pain before. I, so it didn't really shock me. It was just sort of like, whoa, did he just punch me in the face? And and he, he had the most guilty look on his face too. He was just like, he was just like, oh God, I just punched him in the face. And I was like, it's cool. Don't, you know don't worry about it. I'm, I'm okay. We still got to turn around and go home. And then he was like, okay. And so we, we turned around and went home. Mm. You know, that's the level of, of quote unquote violence I'm talking about. I'm not talking like, you know, he was trying to kill me or something. It was just like, like you're saying that, that uh, black and white thinking, black or white thinking, and that intense frustration that he must have felt in that moment, being close to his, you know, oasis promised land and me just saying, nope, we got to go back. You know, does he understand work shifts? Does he, uh, does he maybe think, well, if I wanted to, I could probably extend my, my, my shift or I don't know, or he could go on his own or, you know, whatever sort of thoughts he had that he was having a hard time kind of thinking about and, and telling me about. And that's really interesting to hear you describe that, that, uh, and I, you know, maybe it's part of that focus thing. It's just like, Right now, all my focus is on my frustration. There's no other focus on like the bigger picture. It's just like, and I feel that frustration in this super intense way. And then, um, and then you know, that obviously leads to behavior that could be uh, interpreted as extreme. Um, so when I talk about violence, that, that's the kind of story that I think yeah. about. Sure, sure. And I think one of the things that uh, to, to give a possible tool to clinicians people working with folks that are experiencing that level of frustration that feels uh, the tool is understand it feel that frustration feels bigger than your own body. Like it feels like it, you cannot possibly like it, you can't contain it. And 
maybe you've never experienced that, but, but you could maybe imagine that if I don't do something with this feeling, it's, it is going to kill me. It's going to, you know, blow, it's going to rip my skin apart. It's going to blow up my whole body. I can't contain this. And it's not to excuse like, oh yeah, you should just, you know, get used to being punched in the face. Of course not. But it is that like they, the intention probably isn't, I really want to hurt you. The intention is I'm going to die. I need to do something. I'm going to die. And because this feeling, whatever this feeling is, it's too big for me. It's bigger than my body. And it's, I'm going to explode. If I literally, it's not a figure of speech. Literally, it feels that way. That, that's, that's great. I love that you're saying that it makes total sense to me. I don't think I comprehended that aspect of it until you just said that. It's just overwhelming emotion of suffering. And yeah. I need to communicate that to you somehow, um, especially if you're getting in my way of, of me being able to relieve this, this feeling. You know, it makes sense. Like the, the analogies that sometimes I, I go to is like, imagine your child is walking across the room and, and they haven't picked up their toys yet. Well, you're not going to grab your kid by the by the elbow and yank them away and say, pick up the toys. But if they're about to run out into traffic, um, your emotional state is going to kick in. You're not even going to think, and you're just going to grab that kid by the elbow and you're just going to yank them back and you might really hurt their arm, but you're having an emotional reaction of just like, you're going to kill yourself and I love you a lot. And my body is just going to take over and I'm going to make this happen. Like you're not going out into that traffic. I don't care how much I hurt you. I got to stop this from happening. You know, I'm guessing it's a similar experience. It's it's just like, there's such an overwhelming feeling of suffering that it just comes out. You know, you just have this impulsive reaction based on the the sheer amount of frustration. You know, the other thing I think about, and correct me if I'm wrong, because I'm not quite sure if this is true, is uh, sound sensitivity. You know, you were talking about sensitivity to certain feelings, but also uh, sound sensitivity of loud noises, annoying noises are also potentially intensified. And that can create not, you know, not just like nails on chalkboard, but like 10,000 nails on a chalkboard. Is, is that true? Yes. I experience, uh, I have to like, um, I've done this my whole life and I didn't understand why until recently. Um, I've had to uh, plug my ears whenever I flush a toilet and, um, it's, it's, not, I mean, I don't know. I didn't know that was other people like, Oh no, that's just a normal sound. Like I also, one of the reasons I don't like live music is because I can't like the applause is too much. It's, it's far too much. I also don't like rain because of the sound of rain. It's, it's, it's far, it's overwhelming. It's, it's too, and it's triggering. It's actually, it triggers a overload sensation. I think one of the, um, one of the reasons why a lot of, uh, I, I know a lot of parents who have um, kids on the spectrum and they take them to the grocery store and they have just what they call temper tantrums, just total, absolute flail, cry, yell, all of this. And they think, oh, it's because I'm not getting them what they want. But there's a big difference between a temper tantrum and a meltdown. And a meltdown is due to sensory overload. And so 
Sounds can trigger that. Um, sights can trigger that, like the flashing lights on a bike at night, like that. I mean, I'm, I'm glad they're, the bikers are wearing that because it's hard for the cars to see otherwise. But if I get that in my eyes, it actually triggers like a kind of a kaleidoscope sensation and I can't really see for a little while afterwards. I think the reason that these these sensations, it can, it can be anything. Um, sights, it's, uh, smell can be a particularly difficult one too. Uh, and taste. And I think the reason, part of the reason that these are all such, because they're all turned up high is because it, they're such big deals is they take away the focus. Uh, they can't focus on anything else. Like if it's raining, I, I can't actually focus on anything else except for the sound of that rain. And it's really, it's not really a choice. And also it doesn't, there's this concept of desensitization. Like if you wear a watch after a while, you don't feel that watch anymore. If you have a ring on, you don't feel that anymore. That is not true for most people on the spectrum. We feel that all the time. Like when I, uh, you know, I can feel my glasses. I wear, I've worn glasses for almost 30 years and I got glasses when I was like seven. I can still feel them everywhere. They're touching my face. I can feel them. I put them on at 530 this morning. So it's not, we don't have that desensitization mechanism. And so it's just, it keeps building and building and building. And if it's a particularly offensive smell or sound or sight or touch, it just builds and builds and builds. And then that frustration happens. Like I'm powerless. I can't do anything. And it's an invasion. Like traffic feels like an invasion to me. The sound of traffic, just in, just standing waiting to cross the street, normal traffic. It feels like an assault. And I mean, I, there are ways that you can mitigate that, but I think that that's, it just, it builds and then it snowballs. And so I think that's kind of where we see the, the acting out of like, I'm, I'm overwhelmed. I can't do anything. I need this to stop. Whatever sensation is happening, I just need it to stop. And I don't have the tools to get it to stop, especially for children who feel particularly powerless around their environments. They can't control that. Yeah, I'm going to tell another story about another time I got punched, but this was not someone on the spectrum. <laughs> um, but it did involve someone on the spectrum. Was I, before all these other jobs I had, I was a security guard downtown Seattle, and uh, the um, Torchlight Parade, which is our big parade, seafair in 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 late in the summer, and I was security guard on Second Avenue, and there was maybe someone on the spectrum, I'm not sure, but, or someone had a related sensitivity and the parade had all these noises and people were walking around with all these noisemakers and stuff. And this individual started to have one of those meltdowns because of all the noise. And he mm. was, I could hit, he was red in the face and he was just standing there, um, you know, overwhelmed and, and upset. And he, I think he was putting his hands over his ears and he was kind of screaming. And this other fella who I would kind of recognize as sort of a regular on, on my beat, if you will. And he thought that the individual suffering was trying to fight him or something. Mm -hmm. And so, um, and this story has a lot of sort of random details that I'm going to tell, but um, there's a certain class of people that when they want to get in the fight, they take off all their clothes, which doesn't make any sense to me. Uh, I, maybe they don't want their clothes to get hurt or something. I, I don't really understand it. But anyway, so, so this guy, he's like, you're going to fight me. You're going to fight me. And I'm the security guard watching this. Like, Oh God, you know, how do I, even though it's not really my job to stop it, I just felt like I should cause I'm wearing a uniform. 
And, uh, and the guy starts taking off all of his clothes and I'm like, Oh shit, he took off his clothes. You know, shit's going to go down. Cause you know, he just took off his pants and his shirt. He's just standing in his, underwear in, his in his shoes. I don't understand it anyway. So he's like, let's go. And I go up to the two of them and I'm like, I'm like, I don't, you know, cause I'm like, dude, I don't think you understand. He's having a situation here that has nothing to do with you. Um, you're taking it personally. Um, let's all stop to it. And then the guy without any clothes on punches me in the face. Um, uh, so that, that's my other story. <laughs> but anyway, uh, uh, that was maybe my first, uh, time experiencing that some people have a condition where it's these kinds of noises that are kind of annoying to me too, honestly, you know, it's just like, if I had to live with that, if you tried to fall asleep to that, it'd be hard if it was going on all the time, or if you were trying to read a book, those kinds of noises would bother me too. But if you're brain is such that uh, it can only focus on that. And every time it happens, it's a novel uh, brain experience, the way you're saying, you know, like your glasses still feel novel to your face when, uh, when for uh, neurotypical people, the brain habituates to that sensation where uh, if it's not novel, you don't notice. If, if, if you changed your glasses, you'd be like, oh, these glasses feel different, but then you'd eventually habituate. So I can't imagine what that experience must be like to have that just cranked up of just like every noise, every sensation, every annoying thing that annoys me uh, that I can't get away from uh, accentuated and exacerbated and exaggerated and my brain won't get used to it. I just can't imagine like how annoying the world would be. <laughs> yeah. And it could, it could also, uh, that could be another thing that feeds into, well, gosh, I must be a monster. I'm annoyed all the time. I'm annoyed by things that people react to as little things. And they're, they're not little to me. Gosh, I must be failing at any sort of emotional control or regulation or whatever. And I mean, that may be why um, that individual took off his clothes because he was feeling the fabric on his skin. And he was trying to just like, I too much sensation. It's too much. I can't have this anymore. I don't know what else to do. No, no, no. To be clear, the guy who took his oh. clothes off wasn't on the spectrum. The other guy was, I, I don't know if he was on the spectrum, but he had a, he had a very much of a sensitivity to sound. The guy who yeah. took his clothes off was just one of those guys that was a regular on the streets that would get in fights with people sometimes. Like he was just kind of a... So maybe he was being provocative. <laughs> I, I don't know what his problem was, but it, it, was, it wasn't... I don't think it was yeah. autism is my point. Um, so I don't yeah. know if I mixed that up in the storytelling. I just want to be clear. The person who, had, who was, might have been on the spectrum was just having an emotional experience to all the noises. The other guy who wanted to get in the fight was just a guy who liked to fight people, I think, on the street. And yeah, maybe was trying to be provocative. I think still the, like, I have to have the my socks on a certain way. Otherwise, like the seams, if I, I can feel the seams in the socks, and if they hit my feet at the wrong way, like they have to come off and I have to redo it. And I don't get used to it because of the habituation thing that doesn't happen. I'm a little bit like this. Um, and I've, I've done some research on giftedness and also yeah. highly sensitive individuals, they, they sometimes yeah. call them. And, um, similar to me, like, like I, you know, you notice I don't have any tag on this shirt, um, because, um, I don't like that feeling. Um, I always take off my shoes whenever I get a chance, like I'll be teaching class and I just take off my shoes because I don't like the feeling of my shoes. I'm, I'm, I'm 49 years old and I haven't got used to wearing shoes yet. 
Um, there's all sorts of things like that, that, that annoy me. Um, certain, yeah. like, like my wife always kind of makes fun of me, but we'll be at a restaurant or something and I'll hear a song I don't like, and it's very distant. And I'll be like, Oh my God, I hate this song. And my wife's like, I didn't even hear this song, but you know, I was like, how can you not hear that annoying yeah. EDM song? It's just so annoying. Now I'm not, I don't, I don't conceptualize myself as being on the autism spectrum, but I do consider myself to be what, you know, the guy, highly sensitive people or what some people call gifted. Are these things related or are they two different roads to the same uh, experience? Yes. I've heard um, HSPs, highly sensitive people. I, my theory on this is that uh, people on the spec, all people on the spectrum would probably qualify as HSPs. Not all HSPs would qualify as being on the spectrum. Um, uh, I've taken that. There's a quiz out there, a 20 question quiz uh, about the person who developed the highly sensitive person uh, framework. And, you know, I got a 19 out of 20. I think um, almost everybody that I have uh, given that quiz to who's on the spectrum gets high, high numbers, 18 out of 20, 19 out of 20. Um, just because you get a high number on that quiz doesn't mean you're on the spectrum, but I find it difficult. I would find it difficult for somebody on the spectrum to not get a high score on that just because a lot of it is, I mean, a lot of it is like the physical world and how you interact with the physical world. But a a lot of it is also your people are uh, on the spectrum are sensitive to their, to their emotions as well. And so they react to a feeling sensation similarly to a physical sensation. So like similar to how I can't really stand the sound of rain and that's all I can hear if that's happening and it doesn't go away until the rain stops. If I have a feeling of anxiety or shortness of breath that feels like anxiety, that's all I can feel. And because, and it just, the more you focus on it, the more it magnifies, but it's not really like it's a choice. It's just like the brain goes problem that's a problem. You must fix it. And it's not fixed. So I'm going to still focus on it. Oh, it's still not fixed. I'm still focusing on it. But the problem is, is that you can't control your external environment. And so that's where the like big feelings come in and the volcanoes and the explosions of like, I feel powerless over this thing that is hurting me and feels like it's assaulting me. And I can't, like, I can't get the rain to stop. I can't drown it out, really. I mean, unless I have major noise-canceling headphones, you know, but then I have the pressing against my ears, and then my ears hurt. So there's a lot of a felt sense of a, of a lot of powerlessness that goes on with these uh, sensory overload experiences as well. And that's probably why we see a lot of uh, aggressive or uh, potentially violent behavior, too. Yeah. So... Switching gears a little bit, I am president of a nonprofit called Game to Grow, which uses Dungeons and Dragons and other kinds of games like that to help people on the spectrum. And uh, they're teenagers or young adults, and they're groups of like six to eight individuals, and there there are two facilitators, professional dungeon master therapists who will run the game and. Uh, tailor the experience to where the person is in terms of their spectrum or their development or their awareness of their uh, situation or their acclimation to the group. And the beauty of this model is that uh, for people on the spectrum, they're more likely to like a game like Dungeons and Dragons because of the rules involved. And because, you know, there's a, 
that when, when this happens, you do this, you roll a die. And if the die says that this happened, then this is what happened. And it provides a framework for socializing, for self-esteem, for, built, for discovering who you are as a person um, that these, these guys, uh, Adam and Adam, developed over the years uh, at Game to Grow uh, is just beautifully designed to, to help people, really anyone, but uh, it's particularly helpful for, for people on the spectrum because, because, of, because of those reasons. So I just wanted to point, point that out um, if people want to go to gametogrow.org and find out more information. And you can even hire them to teach you how to do that model or if you have a kid or you yourself would like to participate in it, you can sign up. And, and the beauty is, is that the individuals are dying to go to therapy, essentially. <laughs> like, you know, they're not, they don't dread talking to the therapist. They actually are like, I can't wait to go to therapy. And, uh, and the, you know, it's not just playing a game. It's like a very therapeutic game. But I wanted to ask you, Megan, about, you know, popular culture, like the yeah. good doctor, for example. Um, uh-huh. That person is uh, supposed to be on the spectrum. What's your opinion? Is it accurate? Yes, I've gotten that question a lot, especially also with uh, the character Sheldon on the Big Bang Theory and various other uh, portrayals. They did not, uh, as far as I understand the Big Bang Theory, they did not intentionally make Sheldon be on the spectrum, but a lot of people are like, oh, clearly that that person's on the spectrum, or no, he's just a jerk, or oh, well, aren't all people on the spectrum jerks? Um, I think, and then there's also the movie Rain Man, too, with Dustin Hoffman uh, and various portrayals of uh, people on the spectrum. I think one thing that, uh, so I think there's good and bad to that. I think um, from what I've seen of, uh, I, I love the Big Bang Theory, first of all. And I, the first episode, I was like, did they intentionally create a character on the spectrum? That's amazing. Um, because normally we're kind of either just totally ignored in pop culture or we're seen as violent, like the Sandy Hook shooting um, perpetrator and the really awful piece that Malcolm Gladwell wrote in the New Yorker about that. But, um, and so and I, I really, uh, I identified a lot with, uh, with Sheldon from the Big Bang Theory. Also the, and I like the good doctor because it's, that character is actually pretty different than Sheldon, but it shows you a spectrum. The, the dangerous thing is that, uh, again, people, I think all people, actually like to have templates for how they're going to relate in the world. Kind of like how the rules of Dungeons & Dragons really helps people grow. There's a framework for what feels like a very chaotic world. In a world that, like, we don't understand the social rules. Oh, good. Here are some clear rules. This is great. I love this. Structure, awesome. Because it's not out, out there in the social world at all. And correct me if I'm wrong. It's not necessarily a uh, attraction to rules, which may or may not be present. It's that if you tell me the rules, then I won't disappoint you because I don't want to disappoint you. I actually want yeah. to relate to you. I, I like you and I want to please you and I want to have a relationship with you. And if you yes. just tell me what to do to so that I can show you that I care... Um, that will help. So it's not the rules. It's just like, it's that empathy. It's that human desire to have a relationship. It's just like, that's why they want those rules, right? Right. Totally. That's why we seek the structure and the rules because we're like, well, I I don't understand what's going on. Clearly there's all these unspoken rules that I can't seem to figure out, but oh, good, good. Here's some, here's ways that I can relate in ways that are pleasing and acceptable because what I want is to be accepted and I want connection. 
So it looks like rigidity. It looks like rules. It looks like structure. It looks like that's what we're after, but we're after that as a means to connection and understanding. And so I think that's, that's one of the good things about Sheldon from the big bang theory is even though, I mean, obviously it's, it's dramatized. It's a TV show. It's hammed up to be funny, but there is that he wants this sense of structure, partly to feel safe because there's all this uncertainty and chaos and can't figure out what the actual rules are. Cause maybe there aren't any. Um, but it's, there's that, I think there's a, there's a shallowness to pop culture that doesn't get at, you know, well, why does Sheldon like the rules or why is the good doctor the way he is? It's great to have, you know, various portrayals of people potentially on the spectrum somewhere, but um, I have yet to see a movie or a TV show that really gets into, you know, what, why, why is it that uh, people on the spectrum have these so-called symptoms or so-called patterns or so-called, you know, fixations or special interests? What is it that's actually going on there. I think the good doctor does, it does kind of go there in some places. You're like, well, oh, this, this person is a medical savant. Why is that? So they go into the sort of, you know, this is kind of what happens with the brain and whatever. But I don't think we go into enough, enough depth with um, social interactions, because there is still this kind of assumption that, well, uh, people on the spectrum aren't they don't have deep social interactions. They, they can't. Yeah. My, I've only watched a little bit of the good doctor, but my reading of it is that everything that he does is framed within the autism identification rather than this might just be a part of his personality. Like I remember there was this scene where um, his friend has a terminal illness and the uh you know the good doctor the person on the spectrum is kind of struggling with those feelings and having a hard time of like how do i express that or what's going to happen or how am i going to do and it's sort of acted out um by the actor as he's he just doesn't know what to do so he kind of focuses on work a lot and it's implied that he's struggling on the inside but he doesn't really know what to do everyone does that, (laughs) you know, like it's not just autistic people. Like anyone can be like, I don't know what to do with these feelings. And so you're right that it's like, we're sort of at the beginning phase of exposing people to this notion that there are people on the spectrum. And so it's, it's like everything is seen through that, through that lens. Like I, I, I'm, I'm old enough to remember the very first depictions of gay people or trans people. And we had these very one-dimensional characters. It's like everything was seen through the fact that they were gay or that they were queer. And now we're starting to see people that are queer that just have regular personalities. And yeah, they're queer. And there are aspects that might be common to queer people, maybe that they experience or tendencies, maybe given the way that, you know, they experience society. But they're fully fleshed out characters, just like a heterosexual person would be uh, fully fleshed out as a character. And I think it's going to be another 10, 20, 30 years before we see someone on the spectrum being portrayed in that more well-rounded, fleshed out way. Right. I think one of the one of the dangers is, uh, I think one thing that the Big Bang Theory did well is that it didn't intentionally 
portray Sheldon as on the spectrum. Um, and they just thought like, oh, this will just be like a funny way we can like make the show hilarious and kind of get the characters to interact in these particular ways. Uh, which is good because you can't, there's the danger of tokenizing like, oh, well, yeah, look, we have diversity or, oh yeah, this is, we're going to, you know, create one of the things I really like Sesame Street started, um, including um, a character, a, a puppet who uh, was on the spectrum. And I think they've done a very, very good job with that because they balance, oh yeah, this is, this is a part of who you are. This does impact how you see the world and you're still, there's, st- there's all of you. There's still all, all of you is, is welcome. And it's not like, oh, you did that because you're autistic. You did that because you're autistic. Like, well, I mean, yes and no. And I think that's, that is also one of the things that I don't like about um, when, when people portray in the media, when they portray, one of the ways that they portray people on the spectrum badly is everything you do is because you're autistic. But also another danger there is to say oh oh no that doesn't define you that doesn't define you well that's pathologizing autism like on some level autism does define me if i didn't have autism spectrum disorder i'd be a different person because i would have a different brain and i don't have any problem saying that like on some level it does define me and that's actually okay because uh, I don't necessarily think that autism is a disorder. I think it's a difference. I think it can cause challenges. Um, but like being human can cause challenges too. So I think the whole like, oh no, it doesn't define you. It doesn't define you is another way of pathologizing autism in a way that isn't, isn't necessary. Like, well, what would be wrong if, what would be wrong with it defining me? What, what would be the problem in saying that? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's, so the well-roundedness piece is important. And also I don't think it's, I, I don't have any problem with saying, yeah, I mean, I'd be a different person if I wasn't on the spectrum and that's okay. Yeah. That's amazing. Um, again, I, I don't think I would have ever comprehended that experience until you explain that. That makes a lot of sense. And I'm guessing the listeners are really happy to hear you articulate that. That's fantastic. Um, I just want to wrap up with a few little questions. Ben Affleck in The Accountant, I did a whole episode about that. Is he supposed to be on the spec? He's supposed to be on the autism spectrum. I don't know if you saw that. Did you see that movie? No, but I did hear about that whole uh, idea of like, oh yeah, he is supposed to be on the spectrum. Yeah. Yeah. He's, he's an accountant um, and he's also... I can't remember the story. It's been a while, but I think he's also like a contract killer or something. He, you know, like he's, he's very good at, at, at killing people. And I remember watching the movie and there's some aspect of the movie that I thought, okay, they're actually, cause it's very much focused on, it's supposed to be very much focused on his, his autism uh, condition mm-hmm. and his, um, his experience of, of his autism or something. And, uh, I remember thinking, okay, some of that's great that they're raising awareness, but you know, if s- there's a possibility that this might be the only thing some people see that involves yeah. someone on the spectrum, and it, it it sort of reinforces some stereotypes that they don't have emotion, they don't really care about other people, they can kill very easily, they uh, are uh, hyper savant in, in this sort of superhuman way. You know, he he was this superhuman killer that 
knew exactly where to shoot and knew exactly how to predict people's moves so he could get them before they got him. And uh, I remember thinking like, okay, it's, it's good on one level, but uh, as a society, we need more fucking examples because I'm worried that a lot of people are going to equate this with uh, what autism is because this is, I guess this is potentially one version of it. It's not like a person with autism can't be a contract killer and can't be a very good killer. We've seen that in other movies as well, where you have a very good, uh, you know, murder for hire. It's so it's possible someone on the spectrum could be that for sure. But to equate those two, because now they're going to be like, Oh, that must be what autism, autistic people are like. Um, so I was just curious about that, but if you haven't seen the movie, then I'm guessing you're not going to have much to uh, offer on that. No, but I, I do have a thought about Rain Man because uh, the movie with Dustin Hoffman, who was on, on the spectrum uh, as well. And I think uh, when I've come across people who are like, oh, uh, you, don't, you don't look autistic or, oh my gosh, I never would have guessed. I'm like, what do you know about people on the spectrum? And sometimes the only, the only reference they have is Rain Man. And I'm like, well, of course, yeah, of course I wouldn't look like I'm on the spectrum then because I, that is, that's one end of the spectrum. I'm on a different end of the spectrum. And so I think there are those, those cultural pieces where like, yeah, it is a problem when the only thing that somebody ever sees is this one portrayal. Like neurotypical people could be savant killers too, but we don't really, we don't emphasize that when we're, you know, when it's like a con movie or when it's like a, you know, we don't go like, oh, and he was neurotypical. Like we don't say that. Um, so I think that that can, the Ben Affleck movie or Rain Man, like any, there's a problem with any sort of cultural piece like that, where that could be the only time somebody comes across somebody with autism. And it's like a challenge for the movie makers too, because of course they can't, no one thing can say everything about a topic, but that's why we need multiple more examples. Like, you know, the good doctor, I think is, is doing a, is a doing a good job for its scope, but everything has a scope, which is why we need more examples. Sesame street is another great example. I think what we really need is a lot more people who are on the spectrum making the movies and actually acting in them and do like creating culture for, for ourselves too. Speaking of self-determination. Um, so yeah, there's, there's always that danger of this. Oh, I saw this one thing about autism. Therefore that must be what it is. That's a very human thing to do. Like, Oh, that must be the example. Okay. But then you go, well, sure. That is one example. It's not the whole. Right. Yeah. And, and I think you've done a really great job at explaining the foundation that blossoms into some of the things that you see, but don't necessarily blossom into one presentation. It's, it's good to understand, you know, that, that focus experience that you talked about um, could explain lots of different manifestations of it. The last question I have for you is about Malcolm Gladwell. You mentioned that he wrote some terrible thing. Um, I, I, I love like 98% of everything Malcolm Gladwell has ever done. Uh, there's some things where I'm like, ah, I don't know, you're kind of stretching it there. Um, yeah. So it's not like he's flawless. What did he do that? I, I've never heard about this. What did he do that was wrong? So, uh, and one of the dangers is everybody loves Malcolm Glad Gladwell. So they're going to like worship everything he writes. So I think it was 2013 or 2014, fairly soon after the Sandy Hook shooting, Malcolm Gladwell wrote an article in the New Yorker and it was uh, about 
the perpetrator of the Sandy Hook shooting, uh, or allegedly, but there was a lot of extrapolations about like, oh, well, because the perpetrator was allegedly on the spectrum, therefore that means this whole swath of things about people on the spectrum, such as because they lack empathy, they're violent. And so therefore, um, you know, they, they can't be trusted. They don't understand human emotion. It was very dehumanizing uh, because one person who was allegedly on the spectrum committed a horrific crime. Uh, his article then put the rest of us in danger because actually this is true of all people with um, autism spectrum disorder and uh, mental health diagnoses uh, that we're actually more likely to be victims of violence than perpetrators. But, and part of that is because of the stereotype that, well, because we have these diagnoses, we must be dangerous. So it was this, it was this article that just kind of went too far. You know, that's a bit of a stretch kind of like I take this thing you know, correlation and causation. That was kind of a, that was a a thing he messed up there. So um, I don't think he was intending to in any way throw everybody on the spectrum under the bus. I just think that he, he committed the same fallacy that all humans do, which is when they come across one instance of something, uh, they, they make it a template, but like, it's like an anecdote is not proof, you know? So because there was this one particular guy who had this potentially one diagnosis and did this one thing doesn't mean anything statistically. And I think he probably did it because, you know, that was a horrific experience. People were terrified and we always want answers. And the, the more afraid people are, the more answers they want. And those answers have often come in the form of who's the enemy and so I think that that's, uh, and I, I wrote a letter to the editor of the New Yorker and was like, huh, I don't understand why you published this as somebody who's on the spectrum. I feel like this endangers me and it further entrenches the stereotype that every person on the spectrum is dangerous. And that letter got published, but what I really wanted was an apology from Malcolm Gladwell, which, you know, I know that it's not going to happen, but I just think that and he was well, he's well-meaning too. He's a very smart guy. I also love almost everything he writes, which is particularly like, that's why this was particularly shocking was it was like, it felt a little bit like a betrayal. I was like, wait, you're usually like, so on it. What? How is this the thing? And also New Yorker, what, what's your deal with publishing this? So yeah, that was just the main, the main thing I have. Um, there, I have a link to the the article and then also my letter to the editor on my on my website if people are interested. It was like six years ago now, though. But yeah. So what is that website? Where can people find you? Yeah. So my uh, website, I'm as I mentioned at the beginning, I'm a writer. So my website is meganwildhood.com, just my name, and it's um, it's a running list of uh, my publications, which I. I am aware needs to be redone. I am not one of those people on the spectrum who understands computers. So I'm not very good at that, but that's the main place people can find me. I also write for uh, madinamerica.com. Um, I write in a, a post once a month there. I write for Seattle's street newspaper, real change and um, various other uh, yes magazine and um, various other uh, sites out there. But the hub is meganwildhood.com. Great. And they would go there if they wanted to reach out to you because I'm guessing, because I know some of our listeners are on the spectrum too. And uh, there's even been some people who 
recently discovered for themselves, you know, doing some online tests. They're just like, oh my God, I had all 20 of those things. Um, and they have a lot of questions. Mm -hmm. uh, should they go to that website if they wanted to reach out to you as well? Yes, I have a contact form there. I'm happy to, to I've been through that journey of just getting diagnosed and oh gosh, what now and that kind of thing. And so I'm happy to hear from folks. Um, there's a contact me link that you can click on on that website and it'll uh, come to my email. I do, I answer every uh, email uh, from, from readers, from listeners, uh, particularly people who are navigating this journey um, of uh, being on the spectrum in this, uh, in this world that we've got. So that's Megan Wildhood. Megan, M-E-G-A-N, Wildhood, Wild as in the Wild West, and Hood as in a yes. hoodie. Uh, Wildhood, MeganWildhood.com. Yeah. Go there if you want to communicate with her. Uh, as you can see, what a wealth of knowledge and the ability to understand and also articulate this sort of thing. I don't think I've ever heard someone explain autism so so well, so that so relatably, I guess, so that um, I can kind of, I, I, just as a, a similar note, the, my li listeners understand that um, there's this condition, this personality, you know, disorder that they call it, borderline narcissism, these kinds of things. And I have, early in my career, I would hear the symptoms and I would kind of learn the, the basics. It wasn't until I really got to know people and then also found elements of it in myself and it understood the the under the the foundation of it um only then did i really understand what the disorder so to speak or the you know the the literature was referring to and once i understood that it it humanized it to such a degree and the um prejudice against those people is so upsetting because it's based on this misunderstanding that they're this other category of human, you know, as you're talking about, Megan, it's like, no, no, there's just a couple dials that are, that are, you know, dial a little different and it creates yeah. this, this other kind of experience. Um, it's not that different from you. You know, if, if you could just imagine your, your focus being a little bit more like this, um, annoying sounds and annoying things are, you know, more annoying uh, the inability to kind of detect things is, is turned down, a, you know, a little bit more. It's, it, it's not like a separate human being. It's, it's just, it's, it's things that we can all kind of relate to. And then if you had all those dials dialed a little bit differently, you could imagine that kind of blossoming into um, quite a different uh, personality experience because of the disconnect and, uh, and the inability for people to understand what you're going through because you haven't been, properly diagnosed or treated. And so it, then that, you know, it's a similar problem with people with ADHD. Uh, they often have extremely low self-esteem and sometimes have problems with drug abuse or with acting out or dropping out of school. Not because people with ADHD are prone to drug abuse or dropping out of school. It's because they're just mistreated and they're misunderstood growing up and they feel like they're, a, you know, a terrible person. And so that's what, you know, it's our response to people with ADHD that causes those problems, not the ADHD itself. Um, and, you know, so it's similar, it's similar with autism. Um, and so raising that awareness is great. And yeah, I, uh, I, I don't think I've ever learned so much about autism in, in, in one sitting as I, as I have right now. So, so thanks so much, Megan. Um, uh, 
do you have a poem you want to read or is there something you want to close us out here with? Uh, sure. I, um, I would love to read a poem here. I will, let's see. It's one that I, I wrote this, uh, it's, um, in response to, uh, the, you know, the current situation we all find ourselves in here with the, uh, the virus and the quarantine, but it's, um, it's a way of kind of reframing those, uh, narratives of fear and anxiety. Not that those aren't real because this is an unprecedented time for sure. Um, and I've had my share of, um, deep anxiety and freak out and worrying about all the things. But, um, this is a poem that I, that I wrote, uh, kind of to, to come back to peace, uh, as much as possible in this time. So if you were a star and you had strong vision during the COVID-19 spread, you would see the veins of the earth fill with bright and magnetize the white and beige and gray and blue specks that have always belonged to them. You would see the blanket of brown develop holes, dissipate completely in certain parts. So you would be able to see all the way through to a calm stretch of soil beginning to natively stir as if jubilated by respite. You would not know why. So you would join the specks and the sea and the soil in unfurling, reveling. Of course, being a human is being a star. The vision, a blessed gift for each to open. Beautiful. Thanks for sharing that, Megan. Yeah, thanks for that opportunity. Yeah, and thanks for coming on the show, Megan. It's been great. Uh, Maybe we'll get some more questions and we'll have you back on to answer those questions. And everyone out there, please take care of yourself. Megan, why should people take care of themselves? This is true whether there's a pandemic or not, because humans are one of a kind, all of us, and we all just for ourselves, we deserve care and love, but also because of the interconnectedness that has never been more apparent than it is now. When you're taking care of yourself, you are literally taking care of other people. 